Hello and welcome to the Faculty Podcast, covering the latest breakthroughs, research, news and insight delivered by the world's leading academic and industry figures. Well, in 2017, uh, a lot of uh, non-Canadians would not realize that that was the 150th anniversary of uh, Confederation of Canada, the creation of Canada in 1867. And I'd been thinking in the years previous that there hadn't been uh, a lot of uh, kind of uh, new looks at how Canada had evolved in the post-war period from the 1940s to uh, that uh, moment. And during 2017, there was a lot of kind of reconsideration about how Canada had evolved. And I thought it would be a pretty good opportunity to write a new textbook and add to the very few textbooks that existed that looked at the post-war period. And I wanted to do it in a way that really engaged the kinds of uh, aspects of Canadian history that I was interested in, which was a lot about economic and political uh, matters. And it was just a kind of great opportunity to take advantage of that sesquicentennial and fill a gap in the literature. Well, you know, I often try to put my uh, argument, my thesis, right in the title of a book. And that very much is the case with this uh, book, where recreation, fragmentation and resilience really does kind of chart the evolution of Canada in the post-war period. And it's especially appropriate around uh, politics. Uh, In the post-war period, in the first years of the post-war period, you had a kind of uh, recreated political system in which uh, the liberals were dominant and they embraced kind of Keynesian uh, economic and political policies. And there was a stability in Canada, uh, like there was in much of the West, uh, from the period all the way from the 1940s until the 1960s. And that was led very much by a dominant party, the Liberal Party, the party of uh, uh, Lester Pearson and Pierre Trudeau. And starting in the 1960s, um, there was a kind of challenge to the political system. And a lot of that uh, uh, fragmentation emerged from uh, identity politics, uh, like other places in the world. Uh, So you had Quebec nationalists, you had indigenous nationalists, you had uh, women's LGBT movements. And that really challenged the prevailing uh, political system. And it led eventually to a real rupture, not just in uh, party politics, where you saw the destruction of the Progressive Conservative Party in 1993, but uh, the threat to the very country itself in terms of Canada and Quebec separatism. And the uh, resilience part is that by the 1990s and 2000s, Canada survived those existential threats, uh, especially from Quebec separatism, and uh, reemerged again uh, in a similar kind of situation where you had a dominant Liberal Party led by a Trudeau again, this time Justin Trudeau. So politics really followed that kind of uh, model of recreation, fragmentation, and resilience. Well, the environment, it's a a little bit trickier in the sense that uh, uh, recreation uh, in Canada was very much uh, adaptation and adoption of uh, 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 policies around the environment that uh, did uh, lead to all kinds of environmental uh, issues later on in the 60s. So you, you had a kind of embrace of automobiles. Uh, you had a, uh, a building of the St. Lawrence Seaway. You had environmental uh, themes and issues that really challenged Canadians, uh, especially starting in the 60s, around pollution, air pollution, around uh, water pollution, but especially around stuff like uh, acid rain, which was a huge issue in the 1980s, 
between Canada and the United States, and of course, climate change starting in the 1990s. So Canadians, uh, you know, uh, especially the baby boom generation, really did uh, go on a kind of uh, energy consumption environmental binge in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where there wasn't a lot of care about the consequences for the environment, whether it was pollution, air pollution, dumps, whatever the case may be. But in the 80s and the 90s, uh, Canadians started to recognize the threat to their environment. And the third kind of phase is when they started to deal with it. So uh, Canadians addressed uh, acid rain, for instance, pretty forcefully. They decided to start doing things uh, around climate change, joining the Kyoto Protocol, joining the Paris Climate uh, Accord, which is in keeping with a lot of other Western countries, but is a little bit different from the Canadian perspective because there's so much emphasis on the environment. I mean, we're one of the few countries in the world that has an environmental symbol right in our flag. We have a maple leaf in our flag. So there's a sensitivity around the environment in Canada that really was heightened in the post-war period. Well, when you're talking about kind of recreation, fragmentation, and resilience, again, in North America, but in Canada especially, there was this embrace of a kind of ideal of uh, typical nuclear families in the 1950s and the 1960s, uh, conservatism around family that really did not leave a lot of room uh, for people who were other who were different, uh, people who were of visible minorities, people who were LGBTQ, people who didn't have children in the baby boom. There was a lot of emphasis on family and child. And if you weren't part of that dynamic, uh, being part of a kind of heteronormative nuclear family, you were very much outside of the mainstream. Well, uh, that was challenged starting in the 1960s. And the structures of family that was very much traditional started to be challenged. Uh, divorce laws, uh, started to be liberalized. Uh, uh, laws around abortion, laws around LGBTQ rights, all stars started to become much more prominent because activists started to challenge the traditional and legal uh, background that really uh, emphasized that conservative view of family. And we gained a lot of our inspiration from uh, events around the world in Canada. So in the UK, they changed their laws around uh, homosexuality. In the United States, there were uprisings like in Stonewall. But a lot of events happened in Canada here as well, too. There were riots in Vancouver. There were uh, anti uh, um, anti-police movements in Toronto in the 1980s. And there were a whole host of measures that really recreated the family. Uh, in a sense that it was much more expansive, much more uh, uh, non-traditional and accepting of a lot of different types of family structures. So by the time the 1990s and 2000s rolls around, Canada is one of the first countries in the world uh, and it's the first G7 country in the world to legalize same-sex marriage, which is a, a huge kind of step forward, which is uh, before a lot of other countries, which is a reflection of a kind of a fragmentation of the ideal of a traditional nuclear family. But what results is an embrace of all kinds of families, which I think is a lot better for uh, Canadian families in the sense that there's a, a willingness to accept difference in family structures. Well, you know, when you're talking about technology in the post-war period after 1945, there are really two main technologies that uh, shape and reshape how Canada and so many other countries exist. Uh, the first is the automobile. And the second is information technology. And the automobile is a great example because uh, Canada, uh, like much of North America, is recreated uh, as a suburban, idealized, uh, very much auto-oriented uh, landscape. 
in the post-war period and work and life and leisure and family and employment. So much of that is built around the automobile, which is embraced dramatically in the 40s, 50s and 60s. Well, uh, starting in the 60s, there are a lot of challenges to this kind of uh, automobile uh, focused existence. Uh, there are the problems with pollution that come from automobiles, the problems of suburban sprawl. There are the problems of highway building, which seems to wipe out just about all the green space. And the automobile itself kind of becomes a target for a lot of people. And this is something that happens in the United States, but in Canada as well, where there's fights to stop highway construction, fights to move away from, you know, large polluting cars. Uh, now, by the time you get to the 1990s, uh, the automobile has a kind of different place in Canada because we build a lot of cars in, in Canada, but it, it becomes challenged as uh, being the way that people should run their lives. And people start to think about public transit, they start to think about different ways of having a kind of non-obsessively uh, car-oriented existence. So uh, you see at the end, by the 90s and 2000s, uh, there's uh, still a very much a car-dominated society, but one that there's a, a lot of alternatives that are being utilized and a push towards uh, uh, electric vehicles, vehicles and alter alternative vehicles. In terms of IT, IT, as we all know, because we experience it every day, we're doing this right now through faculty, is a great example of the disruption of information technology, computing, digitization, and of course the internet. And Canadians are very much on the forefront of embracing those changes in their work lives. Uh, you know, this is something that is not very prominent in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but becomes really important, especially in the service economy, which so many of us have jobs in, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and of course, personal information technology. Canadians are amongst the first innovators around smartphones, uh, Research in Motion and BlackBerry, uh, Nortel Networks. These are all Canadian companies that no longer really are that prominent, but are really important in creating the information technology and personal uh, information technology and mobility world that we live in. And Canadians are very much part of what is a global kind of experience. But there are Canadian differences in the sense that we, we have these companies uh, that are really important. Uh, they have a kind of rise and demise narrative, especially RAM and BlackBerry, which basically invents the smartphone. And Canadians, like so many other people in uh, the West, Europe and North America, are very much part of the uh, context of how information technology is changing people's everyday lives. Canadian history since the 1940s has really reflected that kind of uh, narrative of uh, re recreation. Uh, we went from being a British nation uh, with uh, a French Canadian uh, minority province to a much more North American and American and English speaking country with a Quebecois province. Uh, that really transformed the way politics and identity functioned in Canada and a, a much more multicultural country too. And these changes really challenged the way people thought about Canada and really uh, threatened the edifice of Canada. But I think that ultimately the, the best aspect of the story is that Canada has remained an optimistic and resilient country. Although we have all kinds of issues, particularly around indigenous white relations, around the environment, around climate change, uh, around inequality, which is something that is, uh, all countries are facing. Uh, Canada in 2020, if you look back the last 50 years, has really done, uh, uh, I wouldn't say a good job, but has tried to do as good a job as possible in addressing some of those issues. Obviously, Canada is, is no saint. 
uh, no Boy Scout. There are lots of problems in this country. But, uh, you know, one of the things about that resilient aspect of the book is that it's an optimistic outlook that uh, illustrates, I hope, uh, the fact that Canadians by and large, are trying to improve, trying to resolve some of those problems that emerged in the post-war period and even before, and that are trying to really uh, make this country um, a place where everyone, no matter where their background is, no matter what their difference is, or whatever language or religion or ethnicity, is a place where everyone can uh, prosper. And that's probably the most uh, important takeaway from the book, I think.